Welcome back to the Sleep for Performance podcast. Today, I am joined by Mr. Alexis Santos. Alexis, how are you doing? I'm good, Ian. Thanks for having me with you. It's uh, it's so good to have you on because it's a bit like, um, you know, meeting one of your, um, I think someone that you, um, like if you follow a rock band and you meet somebody, it's like that for me today because uh, I've been following your meditations for a couple of years. You're in my top five uh, people to tune into to listen to meditation and, and Dharma talks. And I think maybe because you're, uh, not much older than me and you don't go around wearing a robe it's probably a little bit easier to relate to someone like you so <laughs> <laughs> I do I do enjoy your your talks and I've been lucky enough to be on one of your retreats here at the um Janet Grove Center for the Perth um Inside Meditation Group maybe about two years ago was it if you <laughs> subtract out the let's see it was just before the pandemic so what is that now 2019 December I think it was was it roughly yeah, so getting up to three years yeah some, somewhere like somewhere around that yeah. yeah yeah you you were one of the first people that promoted them to me anyway like the the value of lying lying down meditation um I have been I have been known to go after lunch right particularly yeah. after lunch. <laughs> it's just a it's um it's a form that I really enjoy and, and enjoy encouraging particularly uh you know, in our in our the, these times where there's so much kind of overdoing, striving, uh, and just the general need for ease and rest, and it's I know for a lot of people it feels like somehow cheating to lie mm. down and meditate. It's not the real thing, but um, I can assure you, you can have plenty of insights and some deep sense of ease and awareness in any posture, including lying down. And that's that was one of the forms that my teacher emphasized a lot a teacher I studied with in Burma. So I'm just passing down what I've learned uh, and it's worked. Yeah, because there was many but, forms of meditation, but it, but it wasn't there. There was like walking, sitting, lying, kneeling. So it's not just like you have right. to sit cross-legged in some sort of enlightened position. There is all these different forms. Forms in that sense of postures. Yeah, absolutely. The, the sense of our practice isn't limited by um, a particular posture or time, even though, you know, for a lot of people, it's helpful to take a little bit of time and not do anything other than uh, have the sense of it, one's intention on trying to develop some stability and awareness. Um, but then it's helpful to take it outside of that formal practice because we spend most of our time living in the midst mm -hmm. of, of course, all of our activity and conversations and work. So, um, you know, if we really want to try and live a life that feels skillful and grounded in, in awareness and mindfulness, then we got to try to integrate it into the activities that feel challenging. So that's, uh, that's an interesting point. I'm going to come back to that in a moment, actually. So yeah. I, I yeah. should give a little bit of background introduction before Great, I launch, launch, launch into <laughs> lots of stuff. So Alexis, you are, um, I suppose, uh, I, I don't know if titles are, are, are sort of, uh, key and important here, but I would describe you as a, as a meditation Person. teacher, meditation coach, um, you have alexisantos.io where you have lots of stuff here around meditation. Would that be a fair way to describe what you do? Sure. Meditation teacher. Sometimes because I teach in the Buddhist tradition, a Dharma teacher, it's sometimes described in that way. Dharma meaning the, these kinds of teachings that point to, uh, to awareness and then to the potential to have uh, insights that are liberating. Now you join us from the uh, the northeast of the United States, the uh, Man, which is uh, probably not known for being a, a Buddhist hotspot. Well, maybe it is because I think a lot of the um, per, uh, the inside meditation stuff is from around that area. But traditionally, right. the northeast of America wouldn't be known as a as a Buddhist hotspot. So how did you <laughs> how did you get into this? Like it wasn't it's not like you do a college course to become this, is it? Well, uh, I, maybe these days there are some <laughs> college courses because. You know, I'm, I am now 50. I turned 50 this year. Um, and when I know when I was in college, there certainly wasn't anything on the East Coast that I saw. I, maybe I had my kind of blinders on and I, I wasn't uh, seeing what was available. But now it is quite amazing just how available some of these practices are. Um, it wasn't, I didn't come across it. Uh, I, was uh, in 
went to college, went to med school and started to, to kind of have some deeper questions. I was really curious about, I didn't quite know what exactly, but something about uh, understanding more deeply my own mind and what is it that causes so much anxiety and stress. And so I took a leave from med school and went on a little bit of a journey that ended up in India, uh, actually traveling around with both of my brothers who were on a similar exploration. Uh, my parents were not that thrilled um, <laughs> with our shifting uh, shift of focus. Um, and then that's where I came across meditation actually was when I was abroad. When I returned after a few years, I was pleasantly surprised to see how much on the East Coast of the United States, uh, it seemed like word had gotten out, mindfulness was okay to do and, and actually very meaningful thing to start to integrate into one's, into one's life. Do you think that was a kind of a echo from the sort of Ramdas, Joseph Goldstein? Uh, they were all sort of northeast of the U.S. Is that why it was more kind of maybe flourishing around that area? Well, for sure. There's and there's been lots of ways in which Buddhism and the Dharma has has spread around uh, the world, and it has moved throughout the centuries in different regions. Some of the insight tradition that I am in. Uh, insight meditation comes from the countries of uh, Burma, Thailand, Sri Lanka, and someone like Joseph Goldstein, Jack Kornfield, Sharon Salzberg um, were some of the Western teachers that brought uh, these practices to the to the Northeast. Um, so when mm -hmm. I came back to the East Coast, that's when I encountered those some of those teachers as well. So those countries are traditionally what we call the Theravadan Buddhist tradition. Right. What attracted you more to Theravadan as opposed to maybe Zen or Mayahanya or getting into the Tibetan, um, you know, or Tibetan type of um, system of Buddhism, we'll call it. Um, what, what, what drew you to that more so than others? others? Well, uh, primarily ignorance. I, I didn't, I didn't know anything about any of the, any of the schools because I was just <laughs> like, no, you know, I was, well, I was born in Brazil, but raised, you know, in the, in the kind of Western mindset uh, in my family. So I didn't have much of a spiritual framework at all to, and I, and I didn't study religion. So it was really a leap into the dark when I was on a search, I did know I was searching for something, but I didn't know what. And so when I did my first retreat, it was really by chance that this was the form that I began to become familiar with as I practiced some more, my interest opened up as well to other styles and traditions. And I've practiced in a lot of different lineages and uh, a lot of different teachers at this point increasingly it feels as if they're all pointing and moving in the same direction, mm. the different styles and flavors. So I, I don't tend to, you know, to get too, um, you know, worried or, or, or concerned about what style or flavor that someone is drawn to. It just, is it benefiting you, you know, and your habits of mind? Are you growing and is it leading in a direction that really feels meaningful to you. And that's what these practices really invite us towards is something that feels meaningful uh, in our own understanding of what it is we want to do with our time. So that's a bit like the uh, Bruce Lee philosophy in the Tao of Jeet Kune Do, which is like, take what is useful and leave what is is not. Yeah, Sounds great. Yeah, yeah, which I think is great. <laughs> so on, on that topic, actually, what, what do you think about people who could, is, do you think people can practice maybe... Uh, actually, I'll preface this question. Were you were you raised as a Catholic, being Brazilian? Or, well, my dad, uh, my dad's side is Cuban. My mother's, my mom's side is Greek. So I happened to be born in Brazil. Um, they were doing some work down there at the time, um, and I had a mix of things. But primarily, I, I would say I was raised in a not particularly religious household. Um, so I didn't have, a, I didn't have a lot either to try to integrate in terms of religion or fight against. I just wasn't, it wasn't part of my, wasn't mm -hmm. part of my view. Um, my dad was raised very strongly Catholic. 
Um, and I think in his upbringing, he had felt it being so uh, imposing that he he let it go quite early. Yeah. And so that was kind of the environment that we were raised in. Yeah, I was I was kind of similar. Do you, do you know actually just on a side note because this podcast yeah. should be this podcast should be called Tangents. Do you know the link? Do you know some of the linkage between Cuba and Ireland? It's quite tell interesting. Me. Have you been to yeah, Cuba? I have. A yeah, so times, you know, in, but, in, a, yeah. in Havana, there's a place called O'Reilly Square or O'Reilly Plaza, I think it's called. It's got a plaque uh-huh. on the wall. I went there in 2010. Uh-huh. It's got a plaque on the wall, and it's in Spanish, English, and in Irish in the language. <laughs> and it says Ireland and uh-huh. Cuba, two nations divided by a by a sea, but united by a common cause. So Ireland and Cuba have always had a sort of a little bit of a relationship because a couple of reasons. One is that uh, Che Guevara, his full name Mm -hmm. was, because Che means like buddy, it's like a nickname. His full name was Ernesto Guevara Lynch and his grandfather on one side was actually Irish. And so when the, um, the, a lot of the civil rights movements was happening in the 60s and 70s in Ireland, for Catholics in the north of Ireland, they identified a lot right. with Che Guevara. And so there's a famous, oh. the famous picture of Che Guevara, it's on, the, on all of the t-shirts. It was actually drawn yeah. by an Irish artist called Jim Fitzgerald, I think. Okay. So yeah, a lot of Irish people have this kind of affinity to Che Guevara. So um, mm. yeah, so it's an interesting wow. kind of link. And when I was yeah. there, when I, I was there um, on a holiday, we, we got a taxi somewhere. And the guy thought we were Canadian, you know, this is like 12 years ago. I was like, no, Irish, Irish. And he stopped the car and he got us oh out of the gosh. car and he and he shook my hand and hugged me and kissed my oh, wife's dear. hand. Yeah, oh. I kissed my wow. wife's hand. And she's Australian. But it was like, we were like, right. what's going on? He's like, Irish, always very good to us. Always very good to us. I was like, man, I feel like a king in Cuba. When I was Irish. So, so yeah, there's a little bit of a tangential story. But um, mm. yeah, inter- interesting, interesting combination there. But um, yeah. The, Coming back to that um, mm-hmm. question about asking about religious affiliation sort of being raised, because I was the same as a Catholic and left it very early because right. I found it very domineering and imposing. And it's taken mm-hmm. me a long time to even go back and sort of look for the good in it. But right. can people be of a faith in Christianity, like Anglican, Protestant, Catholic, or even be Muslim and still practice, say, Buddhism or elements of Buddhism? Um, or do you think people should just stay in their lane? Well, this is, you know, this is, of course, a very personal journey and, and um, kind of personal question. What, what uh, you know, what is one's kind of upbringing and what's familiar, what is resonating? Um, it's natural, I think, over time that we have different, um, we're drawn to different things at different periods in our life. Uh, to, so potentially to have some kind of uh, sense of being open. Um, and then I think the good in, in any of these spiritual practices are so similar. And I mean, you see it in, you know, in, in folks who really walk the walk and kind of really try to take on the practices. You, you know, it's then it feels like, yes, it, you know, any sort of spiritual practice draws out of us or, or inclines us onto a path that brings us, you know, towards skillful speech, skillful actions, a way of living that we feel really good about, that feels purposeful, meaningful, that we're not going to regret right at the end of our, of our brief time. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of practices, you know, let's say in terms of Buddhism, I mean, these are often described within as being offered with an open palm they're not not meant to try to draw you into becoming something it's really says here are these practices that are supportive to the ending of stress the ending of suffering it's not so much geared towards um kind of big overarching ideas about the framework of or the structure of this world it's very practical on some levels about what is this human life uh, like what is it and what is it what leads to a sense of contraction and suffering what is it that leads to well-being and what are the practices that that you know provide that and so plenty of people have their own traditions and might take on some of these practices because you know this is the whole there's a 
what's called mindfulness-based stress reduction is a, is a whole um, kind of set of practices that have been popularized that come out of the Dharma, mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR, that you see in a lot of hospital settings now, a lot of places mm. that maybe don't want to bring in all of Buddhism, but they really feel that these practices are helping folks handle, you know, the various stressors of what it is that they might be dealing with. If it's in a hospital setting, might be actually dealing with pain, dealing with potentially the approaching of, of death, dealing with loss and grief. So what is it that really supports us in the inevitable changing vicissitudes, right, of, of our life? Mm. Yeah, I think that's uh, really interesting. Obviously, before we start to record this podcast, I shared that story with you about my my auntie, um, my wife's auntie, right. Auntie Mary, uh, passing away as a as a nun on the weekend, um, who lived her life as a nun. And it's interesting because as she was like, you know, over the last few days, we kept putting our hands on her and like, you know, stroking mm-hmm. her hair and holding her hand and and just saying to her like, breathe, Mary, just breathe easy whenever you're ready, mm-hmm. and saying things like, um, you know, mm-hmm. we love you. And mm. doing loving my wife and I for the brief moments we were just on our own because it was lots of people coming and going, we would do loving kindness with her as well. And I think it also brought us a sense of relief and give us a framework to apply independent of any faith, because right. uh, we also met a nun on 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 those few days who actually they have nuns have like a kind of a like a key word or not a mantra, but a kind of a saying that resonates with them. And one nun had a, a name that was Hasid, H-A-S-E-D, it was a Hebrew word, and mm. there was a priest there as well, and I went, oh, you have like these kind of mottos, or like, and she goes, mm-hmm. yeah, Hasid, and I said, oh, that's interesting, and the priest that was there goes, yeah, it's basically like loving, love and compassion, and my wife and I both mm. went, what, like in Buddhism, mm. love and kindness, mm. and he goes, oh, is it, and I'm like, so many things are similar, so, you know, this other nun had this love and kindness, and it was interesting, because my wife and I were like doing love and kindness with my auntie in the bed as well, so, it's um it's it's interesting when you say you can apply these to anything because it's such there's so much overlap and there's there's so much benefit. I suppose my question comes from some people when I say about Buddhism or doing meditation or I go on meditation retreats, people look at me like I'm going off and in some sort of cult and we're chanting and we're getting into some sort of state of craziness or you know, we're evoking right. some sort of spirits or you know, to be right. to be silent for days on end is there must be something wrong with you. Like so that's why I'm wondering like how that could be more compatible with traditional religions, you know, as opposed to being divided or far away. Cause that's what I get. A lot of comments from people are like, think I'm some sort of like nearly devil worshiper by times, <laughs> which is really right. bizarre. I mean, what words are, words are tricky. We say yeah. a word like Buddhism and, and depending on one's understanding and associations, it evokes a whole host of thoughts and feelings and it's interesting because I, when I used to come back and forth out from outside the country a lot, teaching pre-pandemic, a lot more travel. But then over the years, it's interesting watching, particularly as I'd come through the uh, passport security checkpoints coming back into the states, which oftentimes you know can be a little bit, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a little fraught, a little <laughs> tense. Get in line, um, stand in line, follow the signs. Right. Like, whoa, 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 man, I'm just on holidays. <laughs> right, right. And so when I would, when I used to say, or to, to you know, what is it that you do? And I, if I would say Buddhist meditation, fifteen years ago, it definitely kind of it was not helpful to, to say something that made it sound like some kind of far out strange thing. Even now, when I say Buddhist meditation, it's amazing that it, how much it has changed. Yeah. Because now if people hear Buddhist meditation, part of what they're hearing is meditation. And then if I say, for example, I teach, I help folks kind of deal and manage their, with their stress, I almost always then the person doesn't want to let me go through. They just want to ask me <laughs> questions and keep me there to, yeah, to yeah, sort yeah. of hear more. Like, okay, so, so I'm trying. I mean, I'm trying at home, and, and so often I'm actually hearing people say how much they're they're interested yeah, in, yeah. in practice. So, and it's and it has changed a lot over the over these years. But Buddhism still, of course, is an unknown for a lot of people, and it sounds um, you know far away 
from the yeah. east, uh, even though uh, it has been, you know, in different parts of the world, you know, for a long time now, and been practicing by heritage Buddhists as well. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Yeah, that you get so much interest in that as well. That's that's um, yeah. that's interesting. That's grown so much. So. Alexis, before you were a teacher, you said like you you had you know practiced in in Asia and you you were a monk for a number of years. Mm-hmm. What surprised you most about being a practicing monk in Asia as a Westerner? Because it is quite different culturally. Hmm. You know, I, I when I went to Burma, which was where I became uh, I ordained as a monk. I I went there because I had heard from just someone I happened to meet when I was in India, developing my own practice, my meditation practice, going on retreats. And I met someone who said there was a teacher there in Burma that they had just been studying with. And I had been looking to be with a teacher that I could learn directly from because the style that I had been studying was really not... Uh, it was more kind of through a recordings and not direct with a living kind of embodied person that I could feel their wisdom, feel their compassion, feel their loving kindness, their generosity. And I was, I was really aching for that. So that's when I had heard from this person I happened to come across in India, that they had been with a teacher that they really admired. I thought I'm, I'm going to go, I've been looking for someone I was looking in whatever tradition I could find in India. And I happened, it felt like four or five times I went to different monasteries and centers and it was unusual, but I kept hearing the same thing, which was, oh, there was this wonderful teacher here and they just passed away. And it was, and I heard it a number of times when I finally met someone and said, yeah, I have a teacher that I really, really admire as I'm going. So I went to Burma, wasn't expecting to do, um, I wasn't even familiar with Buddhism yet. So to find myself being interested in ordaining a few weeks after arriving, in some ways spoke spoke a lot to the ease of which that Buddhism in Burma, the ease of which it is accessible right, that it's so inviting to ordain, and it's part of the culture in Burma. So for a lot of Westerners, when we have a time off, our primary primary thought is, if we have the opportunity and the privilege to do that, what, what do I want to do with my time? Like, where do I want to go? What kind of enjoyable thing? In Burma, oftentimes, the thought is, let's go to the retreat center. Let's mm-hmm. go practice. Let's go ordain for a week. For 10 days. Yeah. So there's there is this culture of going to ordain. You drop, you know, all of your kind of worldly kind of responsibilities for a little bit of time. You take on, you know, these robes and kind of more rules for that time. So you're not going and out and socializing. You're kind of held by the container of the monastery. And so seeing that arriving in Burma and seeing the ease of ordaining and i was there anyways learning so much from the teacher that i was studying with and i thought well why not try it out like it's i would love to to just see what what does it feel like to mm. to go on alms round you know i had seen photos of the monks and nuns with their alms bowls walking around and it was you know a took a little while for my mind to not see it as begging, but actually as an opportunity for a monastic to receive the generosity of the community that's around, that wants to support their efforts to practice. And that it is a gift for actually for someone to be able to give that kind of support to a monk or a nun that they know is trying to develop themselves. So all of that kind of made it feel like I was with a teacher I liked. The center felt really comfortable and easeful. So uh, I, I think I'll ordain. And so I tried it out and was that most joyful, happy time. I mean, it was strange to consider having so little materially that I was depending on for my happiness. And the joy was just in the simplicity 
the sense of this is such a good way of spending one's mental energy is trying to purify the heart mind to not be so critical, not be so uh, worried and anxious, but but actually letting go of some of those patterns that have been generationally, you know, mm. put in place as all of our conditioning is. It's not just in our lifetime. It's it's certainly from our primary caregivers and, and their parents usually, and and we're in a, a, a kind of vast field of conditioning. And we see the way the world is, you know, burning with so many afflictions of aggression and the lack of generosity. So, you know, what a what a wonderful thing for someone to try to contribute their own heart mind in the direction of some kind of goodness. And that's what retreats are for. Mm. Um, and actually, my my life partner. Um, She's on retreat right now, finishing up her six a six week retreat at the retreat center in Massachusetts that you were alluding to earlier, Insight Meditation Society. So she is just done six weeks and will come out of the retreat tomorrow. Um, so enlightened encounter. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I wish enlightenment were were that fast six weeks because then. I would push everyone go sign up. It's usually a, a slow, but at least, at least eight, at least eight weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I love um, I love Jack Cornfield's response um, right. or his comment. Think think you're enlightened? Go and spend a weekend with your family. <laughs> I love exactly that. <laughs> exactly because usually at the end of a retreat, if anyone ever gets the opportunity, really in the blessing to go on a retreat, meditation retreat, the first few days, let's say it's a week long, the first two or three days are it's a struggle because the mm. mind is all over the place. We're not settled by day three or four. Usually some settling starts to happen by the fifth and sixth day. We actually really start to have some understandings about the habits and patterns of where it is that we get caught, how we get stuck, what it is that our mind tends to believe in that creates so much certainty about who we are. And we begin to see through that in some degree, to some degree. So by the end of a retreat, there has been a whole unfolding. And so by the end of a retreat, usually we feel so polished, so clean, <laughs> and oftentimes to some degree enlightened. And this is where <laughs> as teachers, we have to remind you know, students and any of us on the journey, habits run deep. They take a long time to yeah. purify. So go home, be with people that you're familiar with, these patterns will get reactivated. And so that's why it's kind of <laughs> funny for people to be challenged. Go home if you think you're really free and then see what mm. your, you know, what's your family. I, I hopefully, hopefully there is some sense of, oh, wow, it, you, you do seem a little bit less reactive. You do seem yeah. a little bit kinder. So hopefully there is that, you know, yeah, go ahead. I don't know. I was going to say, I don't think for me when I've been on a couple of retreats that it's, it's that I'm enlightened, but I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. lighter. I'm lighter as when I come out. Yeah. That's that's what I feel. I just feel like it's a great. Um, and to your point about becoming a monk, I think it's a great time to just like drop the phone, drop the email, drop the TV, right. drop everything, and just like de-stress. And that's why I say it to people: right. if you don't care about Buddhist meditation, if you don't care about inquiring into the mind, just a practice of or the space or the, the word you use, container. To just sit and be for some time in a world that is so hectic and crazy, it mm -hmm. is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And I remember on the second night of a retreat, mm -hmm. I felt like after just one night of sleep in that center, mm -hmm. and obviously we're quite lucky here in Perth with the Jana Grove Center because right. you have these lovely little cottages where you have your own room and your own ensuite mm -hmm. and a mm -hmm. brilliant meditation hall. It's open 24-7. You're in this beautiful setting in a in a in a hill in a forest, and it's, and it, when it's so lucky, it's not like you're sleeping on a hard mat, you know, in a in a dormitory mm -hmm. or so on. And so mm -hmm. you've got a lot of um a lot of comfort and great food, awesome food as well, beautiful mm -hmm. food up there as well. It was so good. I, I think I put on about four kilos in two days. But um, on the second night, I woke up at like half four in the morning. And I never do that, and I just felt right. so full of energy after like five hours of right. sleep. And this has made right. me question even as a working as a sleep scientist, chronobiologist is I wonder how much of our sleep drive or sleep need, which I haven't seen being investigated, 
is actually related to daily stress load because we talk about what's right. called a homeostatic drive for sleep. In other words, the longer you're awake, the more the need for sleep. We have a circadian rhythm that fluctuates across the day. We've got all these different kind of cycles that are operating over a 24-hour day. But we never talk about, re- we never, well, not, to not, not to my knowledge, or be able to quantify is what is the stress load and how that impacts on sleep and our ability to think mm-hmm. clearly, really, in this, in this, in this way. Do you have any well, would be, thoughts on that? Sure, it would be. Well, first, it would be an interesting if it if those studies are not out there, and I and I assume that there are some some efforts because there there is so much investigation right now around the nature of the mind and these these practices, right? Awareness and mindfulness practices, um, and what what impact does it have on our well being and um, and as well on sleep. I think any really long-term meditator who has done some very significant and long retreats would almost to the ones tell you that the need for sleep will shift when you're on, when you're taking care of the mind to that degree, particularly when you're on a you know meditation retreat, Sure, it, it is a very protected environment. Who can live that way? But what it does show as at least a counterexample of what is a life, what is a system, the mind and body system like when it's being looked after in a really skillful way. So we're not generating a lot of aversion, a lot of irritation. We're watching that, right? So we're generating wholesome states during the day, what happens when the mind and heart, the body, day after day begins to settle, right? Calms down. And there's more and more skillful states. Most meditators over some period of time, if they're on long retreats, they'll tell you the need for sleep begins to drop. I mean, you've even, Mm. you've seen it, it sounds like not even in very long retreats. Mm. And then there are, you know, for, the, the need for sleep can go way down. I'll just say that. And and it's interesting. It'll be interesting if you take up that, you know, that study and and you know see if you can kind of pin down what happens. Is there a yeah. pattern? Yeah, you there there is a lot of work that comes out like Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin, mm-hmm. and there's exactly. other work as well about sort of um around mindfulness, um, sorry, around meditation and impact on what's we'll say you know, people self-report to the mind, there's EEG work that's going on. A lot of it is daytime right. activity and very little has been done on overnight sleep in sort of objective measures where we're looking at polysomnography or even actigraphy. Right. A lot of it's kind of self-reported stuff from the day. Yes. But I, I right. would, I, I, I'm i kind of thinking about a study that where we could even just measure people's sleep using wrist actigraphy. So just looking at movement even just to get some sort of um, without, without being so invasive and just to say like you know over the course of time like a six-week retreat that would be brilliant because you've got so much time to kind of filter out any noise of the study because 10 days i think even it can be too short it'd be interesting mm-hmm. to see that as the time goes on do people self-reported measures of stress go down as their meditation time goes up and the the lack of like let's say external stressors does that then lead to like you know less sleep every day but you know, a greater sense of well-being. Because I I I think after doing these retreats and talking to people and very limited knowledge, I think that stress is got is such an underrated input into our, our into our need for sleep um each and every day. And the other thing as well is uh, the mm. counter the counter to that is I've come across a number of people um who in the today's world like they're trying to do everything, they want to, you know you know, work 50 hours a week, be the, right. be, be the boss, right. you know, and train for a triathlon, right. have two kids, live in this suburb, have this car, you know, be everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. And not in bed till 11 o'clock at night. And then they want to get eight hours sleep to optimize every day, but then they want to get up at half four in the morning to meditate. What's your thoughts on people actually getting up at half four in the morning to meditate, sort of potentially reducing their, their sleep opportunity by an hour and a half they're meditating in these periods where we right. should be asleep having you know predominantly REM periods to report for cognitive repair and recovery but people are sacrificing that time to get up and meditate and i've had these questions alexis where people say mm. i get up a half hour in the morning to meditate but can't stay awake to meditate and fall asleep on the cushion how can i stop this right. i'm like well it's right. a physiological response it's like yeah. saying you know i'm losing weight and i'm only taking in 500 calories how can i gain weight it's like right you know right. So you got any, any thoughts on, on people doing that in, in a modern yeah. sort of applied at home setting? 
You know, I think a lot of our a lot of our practice and decisions that we're going to make along the journey, and this is particularly for those who are meditators already or you know interested in this process of of having a practice. I think it's it, we never really need to let go of our own wisdom, right? Our own knowing, and whether we need to go, let's say you know, go left as one, you know, teacher, this uh, teacher, Ajahn Chah, Thai forest teacher, he would tell people sometimes go left. And, and then he'd say to other people, no, go right. Well, it was because sometimes you need to go left, depending mm. if you're about to fall off to the right, or if you're about to fall off from the left, you'd say, well, go right. Yeah. So of course, we're always adjusting. So if you're, if we're listening to our own experience and what is happening, and you see, let's say you're getting up at 4.30 and you're falling asleep and you're exhausted. That is just creating another habit of pushing and driving your nervous system to do something that is not really aligned with what is actually happening for you. You're overriding something that is there, which is your mind your heart is, you know, is tired, it's needing rest. Um, and so if, let's say an, you wake up at 4.30 in the morning and, so one second, I've got something come up here. Yeah, so let's say you wake up at 4.30 in the morning and in doing that, your practice helps you feel really settled, really relaxed, that your mind and body are both getting rest even as you're awake. But that's the measure. Are you feeling more and more rested as you practice? Because I have, having spent a lot of time in monasteries with monastics, monks and nuns, I have seen over and over again plenty of you know, times people getting into the habit of just sitting down and falling asleep. Mm. And they're just sort of like those, you know, those, uh, one of those beaker, the temperature beakers that kind of bob yeah, down, yeah. like they bob up and down. Like, yeah, like on The Simpsons, yeah. I think Homer Simpson, I want to work tapping a keyboard on The Simpsons. Yeah. yeah so that's what, <laughs> yeah, that's what you can look like. You're just sort of yeah, like yeah. bobbing there. So, you know, what's, what is happening? Is there, do we, are we really in alignment with the energy of our mind and body, or are we gotten into a habit of just kind of going into kind of a, a sleepy state? Mm -hmm. So I would say for anyone that is that is exploring having some discipline around their practice, first check your motivation. Are you trying to just squeeze in everything and accomplish something else? Or is the motivation feel like this is a helpful time? And it really helps to nourish some clarity, some grounding, some stability, some reflection on kind of your catching up with your own system. You know, you're doing the necessary kind of cleaning internally, right? You're seeing mm -hmm. all the things that you've done and said maybe that were not so skillful or the things that you've done that were skillful, right? So you're taking some time to really check in and you feel the benefit of that. Wonderful. So then it's really just, in a way, finding what is it that feels supportive. And then sometimes I like to really recommend, so I, when I'm offering retreats, I usually tell people when they come on retreat, I would rather just put everyone in the rooms, close the door, lock them, don't let people out for the first three days because of how sleep deprived. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then how driven people are to get out of the room and try and get somewhere because they've signed up or on a retreat. Yeah. And two days have already passed and I'm not yet like, liberated or enlightened mm. so then there's this whole like drive but then by the at some point on the retreat once there has been some rest and there is a sense of ease then actually listen and see do you need sleep or is there an attachment to an, an idea of i need these eight hours maybe there's a sense of real brightness when you wake up after what's happened what happened to you for example after five hours 
if we have an idea that I really need to be asleep right now, then that would cause some anxiety. But if you wake up on retreat and the mind is really bright and fresh and the body feels refreshed because you haven't been stressing it out during the day, great. Go ahead and, and take advantage of that moment, but not by demanding oneself, mm. right? Pushing oneself through physiological processes, right? That are actually playing out. So if we can really listen, we will know when, when is it that we need sleep? And when is there, when is there already a, a, a lightness or kind of a refreshed system? And then we can practice with that energy. Mm. That's, yeah, that's, that's good. I like that. It's like, yeah, getting the balance right for you. Every person is different. Every person is on a different path. And it's like knowing when to do it and when not. And maybe some days half four in the morning is good. And maybe for some weeks, it's not depending on what's going on. So yeah, absolutely. Everyone needs absolutely. to to reflect and adjust. On on that topic, Alexis, um, I remember in your retreat, um, it's quite interesting because I was watching myself get quite irate in a couple of your sessions, not because of you, but because of people falling asleep. And it's mm. not that I cared about them falling asleep, but it was the snoring and the noise. I was like, this is driving me crazy. That was and you were there the, for, for two days, is that right? I, I did the weekend retreat, yeah. And I, I and even then, like on day two, I was quite, quite irate. And then I was, it was very different than my first experience of Bajana Grove. But the, the other thing I had as well is there was a guy who had some physical limitations and he was mm. quite big, but quite, I don't know if he had maybe some hearing issues as well, but he was like an elephant coming in Alby's room, but he also snored mm. like a rhinoceros. So I was actually, I came out of that retreat actually more sleep deprived than when I went into it. Mm -hmm. And it was quite the opposite experience because I was quite, I was getting quite mad, but it was quite mm. interesting again to kind of go on look at you sitting here getting mad at that guy over there. You got no idea what's going on in his life. His life right. might be like really difficult or, you know, really right. shit. And you're, you're, you're in a great life. And so you're mad at him. So it was a kind of a yin and yang experience. Mm. But, but on that topic, like to what degree do you think do meditation teachers or yourself pick up on sleep disorders or sleep problems that maybe, you know, with some people, because as I was looking around the room, there was a couple I thought potentially could be maybe even, narcoleptic because some people hit mm. the hit the cushion and just like boom straight away or it could be like excessive sleepiness or sleep deprived over time but right. maybe some people that might have you know these type of issues or and there was well, def definitely people with sleep apnea in that room as well you would right, tell, tell right. by the size of them and their age and and this the loudness right. of the snoring yeah so right. to what degree do you put that do you consider that as a factor mm. when you're teaching people well i don't have that kind of sensitivity that you probably has as a as a sleep expert um you know, I can say that a, a vast majority of folks who come on retreat are living lives that, you know, are pretty demanding. Mm. And, and we use our minds, right, in ways that, that really is very tiring. And it's, it's rare that one is really inhabiting one's own life, right? The, the various things we need to take care of, the responsibilities, if we're having, if we're doing a householder life, it's rare to have a practice where the continuity of awareness is really there from moment to moment. So it's natural that we're gonna feel depleted in our daily life, that happens. So when people come on retreat, there's a couple of things happening. One is, that is like we're coming on retreat with a level of tiredness that that is pretty universal then if you reduce the stimulation of what we tend to need to stay awake which is you know all of our outlets and even you know well it's it's all of the netflix and our phone the technology mm -hmm. our interactions, you know, conversations, it's where we are stimulated from moment to moment, pretty much from the time we wake up till the time we go to bed. So to give ourselves on a retreat, an opportunity to start to simply be present with the body and mind, that is usually a pretty subtle experience. And so the mind doesn't have the strength and the subtlety yet to be interested in that. 
So for example, for a lot of people, if you say watch the breath in the beginning, it's like, oh, I've been breathing my whole life. What's interesting about that? <laughs> Over time, even a very simple experience of the body breathing has so many nuances to it and becomes very interesting as a support for wakefulness, for the mind to be awake. But that takes some time. So when people come on retreat in the beginning, back to your question, you know, you, there's so much less stimulation. So it's it's hard to say what's causing mm. that. That's why I like folks when they come on retreat, I just sort of assume, look, you're probably much more exhausted than you even realize. Yeah. <laughs> so even if you're getting the full amount of sleep, what are we doing with our mind and body during all of those waking hours? And there's typically a lot of mental energy of planning and trying to get things done and organizing our life and rushing physically from here to there. And it's difficult to do that in a very kind of equanimous, open, clear state of mind. That takes a lot of development. It's doable. It's part of what it is that we want to try to integrate over time, but it 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 really takes a practice right, to meet our life skillfully in that way. Mm. As a as a very uh, opposite extreme example, when you were a monk, how, how long were you a monk right. for, Alexis? How long? Two years. So not Two. not that long, but long enough to really to live and understand me, it. Yeah. To really be in it. Yeah. yeah. But to to from your you know sort of experience living in a monastery and participating right. as a monk for that time, to what um to what degree do you think that they um, the monks slept in terms of like were they, were they like way more than the general population were they way less the people generally go to bed like at 10 and get up at two in the morning because there's this kind of misnomer i think well i don't know if it's a misnomer that's right. why i'm asking the question is that people think oh you know monks only sleep a couple of hours a night and i've got a friend who's a buddhist monk in sri lanka who listens to this podcast shout out to buddha rikita uh, who's from ireland and he said like yeah. you know he he's at more of an owl cross type he goes to bed later he gets up a little bit later and he does exactly the same as you when people come on, come on retreat and he's spoken about that before in the podcast is about he lets people like sleep in and he assumes that people yeah. need to are very exhausted right. and they need to kind of get back to you know into the green so to speak so um do, do monks like sleep in this sort of like you know upright posture for two or three hours a night and don't need any sleep or is um or is that all kind of crap that people spruik out there's such a wide range and it really depends not only on the individual but what that particular individual is what phase in their practice they're going through there are times when there's so much mental energy, so much interest and brightness that the need of sleep really can go down, let's say two to three hours a night for, mm -hmm. for quite a long period of time. Um, but again, it's not that we're not, it's, I really want to emphasize like the mind, the nature of the mind changes a lot and it changes a lot from day to day but it also changes a lot if we are engaged in practices like awareness and mindfulness and then if we're integrating that into our daily life but particularly if we're then on retreat the nature of the mind the stability the steadiness of the mind the sense of internal brightness that is coming and going and shifting a lot so at those periods when the mind you know is particularly bright and resourced internally we do see it that the need for sleep can can go way down but again it's like it's also dependent on the particular being and personality and all kinds of conditions that come together so i to have some sort of model that we think is right or better really would be missing the listening and the tuning to what is actually happening for you at any given moment and that's where i think our practices can support us so much in the sense of if we're sleeping a lot out of lethar lethargy and disinterest then maybe trying to add a little bit of energy to get curious about that habit of dozing off of not being interested in the present moment and then if we're on the other extreme, in the habit of always pushing and striving, what is this attachment to sleeping less and to always being on? What is that attachment about? Mm. How early did that get started? Did you have some 
model in your life that was pushing and demanding that we squeeze every second of life to get something rather than the way we see in the natural world that there's a, a natural rhythm, right? And a kind of, yeah, naturalness to the way, you know, animals and, and, and the ecosystems tend to, to kind of demonstrate, which is a harmony, you know, harmonizing process. And I'd say a lot of our tendencies is not to be in that sort of relationship of a listening where we know whether or not we feel depleted and we need rest. It would be more like we're just sort of either demanding we do rest or we're overriding our tiredness. Mm. So that would be the invitation. And really the gift of awareness is that we can feel more and more clearly what is happening, both physically, also physiologically, but also on the level of our conditioning, like what ideas and assumptions do we have about ourselves at any given time? Like, do we think we need less sleep? Or do we think we need more sleep? Because as soon as we are in that process, we're not actually again, with what is happening as things are unfolding. Mm. Does that make sense that I- Yeah, 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 yeah. No, 100%. Yeah. So to to that degree, then how much do you think that meditation itself in a sort of a bi-directional or circular kind of thing, how much mm-hmm. can meditation help our sleep then as well? So if we're looking at sleep as a right. as something that shouldn't be compromised, we should listen to our body in terms of, you know, when we should meditate, yeah. what time, how in terms can- meditation actually help us relax for sleep because this is where i find a lot of people struggle right where people struggle where just to clarify that that question that sorry it's people struggle actually to um so people struggle to fall asleep or to wind down because they're so busy so in that kind of right. on on ramp for sleep onset a lot of people struggle so could we actually look at it in the opposite way and say meditation could actually be more beneficial just before bed as a daily practice to help people relax or even a smaller portion of meditation, maybe a meditate for 20 minutes in the morning, but then you maybe do another 10 minutes before sleep. Can this be beneficial as well to help people kind of, you know, because we're if they're using it kind of as an on-ramp at the start of the day, can they use it as a kind of a, as a, as an exit ramp off the freeway, so to speak, and, and to, sure. to help sleep onset, you know? Yeah. You know, I, yes, I mean, I think it's what a, what, a, what a wonderful way to start the day and what a wonderful way to the to end the day is to have these periods where we're not otherwise preoccupied trying to get something going or get somewhere. We actually have a, a moment to, to just be in our own experience, cultivating some form of, of ease maybe relaxing the body and mind. So if that's at the beginning of the day or at the end of the day, great, great transition. So at the end of the day, for sure, you know, we've typically have been so geared up, so wired into the fast paced motion of our, of our life, you know, so the mental energies have been typically pretty stirred up. So to take some time to take a deep breath, which ultimately is, you know, what practice in some ways is, it's like we have this opportunity to sense and to feel what we're otherwise missing. It's like we don't normally recognize and feel the breathing process, the bodily energies, the mental energies that have been kind of shaken up all day. So our practice at the end of the day absolutely could be a way in which we begin to downshift a bit into uh, kind of a, a more easeful, more relaxed, more open kind of state of mind. And the very essence of mindfulness and awareness is a sense of clarity. Like it, it is knowing the present moment. It's knowing what's happening. It's knowing what's happening in our mind and in our body. So that kind of knowing will help us, let's say we have habits of, we think, I'm just going to watch this one more thing and I'll just get through that. Mm. And then we just keep toppling forward. If we're present and and aware and bringing mindfulness into our actions, we'll start to see what habits 
are not actually that helpful. Like if we keep doing the same thing night after night, at some point the awareness might start to recognize that and the wisdom might come up and say, you know, I'm actually tired right now. Is it okay to feel that tiredness, not to kind of override it and get through one more cycle of something? Mm. You know, is it okay to actually feel the rest and then, you know, start to kind of ease into that? Right, rather than always keeping the light switch on in our mind, everything has to be bright and going. Yeah. What is it like to just sort of let things begin to settle just the way the night settles? And there is this rhythm, you know, the natural rhythm of the day and the night, day and night. Like how does, does our system flow with that? Are we in tune mm. in some way? And it's hard in this modern bright light, bright lit world, you know, to actually have a rhythm. That is that is in tune in some ways with a natural cycle. Yeah, I think that's such a that's that's a great answer. I love that. So, Alexis, you have uh, kindly um, agreed to do a little short ten meditation that we can maybe potentially use for for sleep onset, which we'll get to know in a moment. But before we do, can you let people know how they could follow your work um, online, how to get in contact with you, um, maybe follow your teachings, and um, what's what's the best way to to follow you? Mm. Well, the best way would be to go on a retreat. It would say, I mean, not necessarily with me. I just would want to say, go, go yeah. practice, try to practice, you know, find anything that's supportive to you. If you're resonate with me at all, you can look at my website. I don't put that much on there. I do tend to offer on the website uh, a monthly day long. So every month I offer an online retreat that's really open to everyone that's, that uh, wants to join in. And that's to really try to, to inspire and infuse your your daily life with practice, uh, with some kind of mindfulness and awareness practices. And you know, most people want to try to integrate mindfulness into the daily life and find it really challenging. And that's what I find the most interesting is to really try to integrate these practices into all the various ways mm -hmm. that our days look. You know, and so. Anyway, so my website is alexisantos.io. You mentioned it at the beginning. If you just search Alexis Santos and meditation, you'll find something about me. And there's plenty of apps where you're on as well. Um, so Audio Dharma and a few others like that. Um, plenty of your talks and meditations are on there. Um, my only point of contention is your day retreats are at the opposite end of the time zone for me I so like <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> every time they come out I'm like oh yeah it's going to be the middle of the night so that's not going to work for me but I do go back off and listen to some of them and listen to your talks I do find it um, quite relaxing so um, yeah and I think as well um, I don't know if this is a compliment or an insult to you even if you don't follow <laughs> Buddhism just to listen to Alexa's voice is so like relaxing you're, you're, it's like a, you, could, you could be just reading off the back of a cereal packet and I, I would still find it relaxing there's a few people like that that I enjoy um just the, the tone of the voice is, is really good so I would urge you all to go and check out Alexis's uh, work but he's going to lead us in a short um, 10 minute meditation that we could use before sleep so Alexis are you going to do a timer on your end or sure you I can do that camera? Yeah. I heard you recently with Dan Harris. It might have been from a while ago because you do some stuff on 10% Happier with Dan Harris, the, the news guy. And I did quite kind of chuckle because your bell went off and it was the inside timer bell and you made a joke about, oh, that's not the 10% Happier oh. app, it's the inside <laughs> timer. And I thought yeah. that was quite funny. <laughs> um, yeah, as Alexis is setting up the timer there, Dan Harris um, has his app 10% Happier and himself and Sam Harris and neuroscientists were both on Joe Rogan a number of years ago talking about the benefits of meditation so um, and how it's helped Dan Harris and other people as well so there's lots of other work around there where Alexis got tentacles into so um, you might want to check out some of that other work yeah the 10% Happier is a great app for yeah. folks wanting to dive into and particularly if you if you feel uncertain where to start it's a great foundation 10% um, Happier is the name mm -hmm. of that app um so Ian, is this, is this meditation for folks who are gonna be practicing as they unwind or listening to this at the end of their day as they unwind? What's sort of the, what's the? Potentially they could listen to it um, just before bed and a half an hour before they go to bed or maybe as they're lying in bed. Yeah. Right, okay. So, so a word of warning to everybody, which I'll say at the very start and I'll put it into the show notes, 
and do not listen. I will segment this meditation from the main podcast. Do not listen to this while you're driving, operating machinery, or doing anything else that may put you at danger. So don't kind of just roll into the next one yeah. from our chat because I don't want anybody to be crashing a car listening to a meditation. So yeah. Well, so, if my voice is that sleep inducing, <laughs> you might have to say, don't listen to this podcast uh, while, <laughs> while I'm driving. Alexis has a tendency to put people to sleep. So no, no, it's nice. It's nice and relaxing. It's good. I need relaxation. Great. Great. All right, sir. I'll be guided by you whenever you're ready. 